Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Donald Trump is not going to be America's next president. That was The Economist's bold prediction in September 2015, a year and a bit before the actual election. Of course, we weren't alone in underestimating him then. But as we think about what to write in our final issue before this election, Donald Trump's knack for defying expectations is always at the back of our minds. A staggering number of voters have already reached their verdict on the Trump presidency. According to Michael McDonald of the University of Florida, well over 40 million Americans have cast their votes already. That's nearly a third of the total turnout four years ago. And there are still 10 days to go. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what has Donald Trump really done? Promises made, promises kept is one of the slogans of President Trump's re-election campaign. Among his main achievements, many would be hallmarks of any Republican administration, tax cuts, the regulatory rollback, and the appointments of conservative judges. But how has Donald Trump changed the country in ways no other president would have? What bits of his legacy will linger, even if he loses? In this episode, we'll focus on the three policy areas we think are most useful in trying to assess the difference Donald Trump has made as president. Immigration, trade, and pandemic response. We'll get the verdict of an economist correspondent on each one. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are The Economist's Washington correspondent and main tourist board's influencer of the year, John Fasman. John, how are you doing? I am very well. My moderate case of election fever is ramping up. There have been 45 million people who've cast ballots so far. I'm getting out on the road next week, and uh, I'm feeling good. Also with us, as ever, is The Economist's New York bureau chief and reigning quiz champion, Charlotte Howard. Charlotte, how's it going your end? I'm well. I'm still in a cloud from last week's win, and I've come upon a winning strategy, which is just to throw out random nouns and hope for the best. Um, That sounds like a good guide to podcasting. We've had various congratulatory emails on your triumph in the quiz, Charlotte, from as far away as Australia. So you must know when it comes to the quiz at the end of this show that the people are, are rooting for you. We've also had a bunch of emails from people asking if we're going to continue this podcast after the election. We've had quite a few nice notes from you guys, a lot of nice reviews on all the podcast apps. And we've got quite a lot of listeners now. And so the powers that be of The Economist have decided to keep this podcast going through into next year and beyond. I think we'll probably be doing more podcasting about American society and how that's changing and a bit less about presidential politics. Um, But we're really looking forward to keeping this going into next year. And Charlotte, so there'll be plenty more opportunities for you to demonstrate your mastery in the quiz. 
I'm not looking forward to the continued weekly public shaming that is my quiz performance, but I am looking forward to continuing the podcast. I would like to congratulate uh, Toyota, the makers of the Prius. I'm sure they understood they were making an efficient car, but I don't think they understood quite how good a podcast studio they were making. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to hearing your reports from the road in the Prius in 2021, John. We've got a lot to discuss in this podcast, so let's get into it. This week's episode is going to sound a little bit different. Normally on the podcast, we like to hear from the kind of sources we talk to when we're putting together stories for The Economist. This week, we're going to step back a bit to hear the verdict of three Economist correspondents on three issues that we think help us understand the Trump presidency best. Now, necessarily, this involves leaving out some pretty important areas, and we'll touch on those in passing. But first up in our trio is immigration. Donald Trump, of course, launched his meteoric political career by speaking about immigrants in a way that no modern candidate had. Adam Roberts, our Midwest correspondent, has been writing about what difference the president's made to immigration. Some people call it an invasion. It's like an invasion. You have to go back more than a century to see this sort of explicit xenophobic language from a president. You go back to 1882 and the the Chinese Exclusion Act when you specifically targeted types of immigrants that you didn't want to come to America. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. But the sort of language that Trump was using as a candidate... They're rapists, they're bringing drugs. And then the sort of thing he's done as a president really don't have any precedent in in modern America. I'm going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. You haven't seen presidents, either Republican or Democrat, being so hostile. We're going to have our borders nice and strong. For a long time, both parties were more ready to let in outsiders, and Donald Trump has broken that tradition. Adam, taken in his own terms, how successful has Donald Trump's immigration policy been? I mean, he hasn't built much wall. Mexico certainly hasn't paid for it. But in a sense, that promise stood for a promise to just keep foreigners out. Has he done that? Yes, I think on on his terms, it has been very successful. You talk to voters, they, they give him very high marks for what he's done in choking off immigration. He's been very successful in stopping refugee resettlement. When Donald Trump came into office, the ceiling of the number of refugees who could be resettled in America was 118,000. He's brought that down to 18,000. And in reality, we're seeing about half that number, just 9,000 people actually being resettled in America this year. America has stopped asylum seekers even applying, in effect, to get into the country. It struck a deal with Mexico to basically push asylum seekers back uh, into El Salvador, Honduras, uh, the Dominican Republic, away from the border of the the US. So there are no more people applying for asylum. Obviously, in the past year, COVID has really choked off all immigration all over the place. But on his terms, I think he would say he's been very successful. A lot of it, I think, goes down to the figure of Stephen Miller, who who has run the immigration policy for Trump and has been an incredibly loyal and devoted uh, figure of the government and just quietly been successful. Not all of it is robust. It's not all based on legislation. But in terms of the effects, we've seen dramatic declines in immigrants and refugees coming to America. Miller, as you say, is a really interesting figure. And I think one of the things that the Trump immigration policy has done is under the cover of preventing 
illegal criminals from crossing the border. It has prevented high-skilled immigrants like Indian software engineers from coming in, hasn't it? It's slow-walked the process for people who've lived in America for a long time applying for residency. There have been a lot of these changes that I'm not sure Trump voters necessarily thought they were signing up to. I think that's true, and I don't think Donald Trump had thought through all the implications of what he was saying when he said these things back in 2015, 2016. But the fallout from all this, especially if you do get an economic recovery post-COVID, where the economy desperately needs, as you mentioned, the skilled sort of workers who work in multinationals, all of these people are discouraged from coming to the US. Students are being told not to come to US, US universities. That has a big impact for a sector of the economy that's really struggling anyway. If Donald Trump's policies remain in place, there will be very serious long-term consequences for the American economy. And Adam, how permanent do you think these changes are? I mean, many of them have been made through executive actions issued by the White House. President Biden, if he wins, could issue executive orders that countermand them. But is it as straightforward as that? It is unclear exactly how much of this can easily be reversed. It's also unclear how much of it a new president would want to reverse because some of the new measures, although politically unpopular, might be useful to keep in place for, for a president who doesn't want to be seen as entirely soft on this issue. For example, on the asylum question, would a new president really want to undo the deal with Mexico that prevents large caravans of people coming to the southern border? And let's step back for a moment and remember that not everything that's been done in America is all about Donald Trump. You look across at other rich democracies across the world, there's more hostility to immigration. Many countries are locking down on these sorts of flows, and so the sort of deal that the European Union has with its neighbouring countries is not a million miles away from what the United States has now struck with Mexico. And I personally would not expect Joe Biden to be quick to reverse that. On other issues like letting in high-skilled immigrants, I would expect a new president would do an about-turn very quickly. John, I think we need to be clear about this up front, that Donald Trump, in some sense, had a mandate from the electorate to reduce immigration in 2016, and that's what he's done, right? Annual net migration to the US fell from about a million people a year during Barack Obama's presidency to about 600,000 people a year in Donald Trump's presidency. I'm not sure that's great for America. I think you'd probably agree with me on that, and Charlotte would as well. But I think that's a legitimate you know, political aim. I think what I have a problem with is the way that the immigration policy has been pursued, for example, by separating parents and their children at the border, the southern border, which seems to have been a deliberate policy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are many examples of this. Um, so it's not the overall aim that seems to me to be problematic. It's the method. How about you? I think that's broadly true, although I think you can argue that he not only had a mandate to reduce immigration, he had a mandate to reduce it at least partly in the fashion that he did it. Remember, when he came down the escalator, he didn't say, you know, I think immigration levels to America are a bit too high and we need to shut it down so new immigrants can assimilate a bit. He came down the escalator and announced that Mexicans were drug dealers and rapists. And so you can argue that what his voters, at least what his base wanted from him, is not just to restrict immigration, but to sort of reshape the conversation around immigrants and to pursue his policies in the cruel manner in which he has. 
Another thing to bear in mind about his immigration policy is that it has also been fairly haphazard. It is demonstrated that while he may have a goal in mind, he and his administration just didn't have people who sort of understood the levers of the federal government terribly well. And that's why you saw him doing things like, for instance, raiding Department of Defense funds to pay for a wall that Mexico was supposed to build. One of the things that's sort of interesting about Donald Trump's immigration policies is that his rhetoric on it is hugely different from that of any Democrat. Compared with Obama's first term, though, ICE arrests and deportations are actually down, which is just a reminder of of that some of these policies actually did predate President Trump. But the things that are really new from the Trump presidency would be the stance towards refugees, the apprehensions at the border, and the separations of families, which really got people on both sides of the aisle incensed. I was struck in particular by Laura Bush, George W. Bush's wife, who wrote a very forceful editorial at the time saying that the separations recalled the Japanese internment camps during World War II, which was one of the most shameful periods in America's history. But I think that the apprehensions at the border and the refugees are really what set them apart. And then something that Adam touched on, which is that his rhetoric has had the result that there are um, fewer immigrants who seem to want to come to America, that applications for green cards have fallen between 2016 and 2019 to the lowest number in five years. So I think that that's another important impact. I think that's a great point. And when we think about what is going to be the lasting legacy of President Trump's immigration policy, I think it's probably two things. Number one is that it just does make America look far less attractive and welcoming. Last year, for the first time, Canada exceeded the United States in resettlement of refugees. And I wouldn't be surprised if the shares of immigrant populations in other countries rose faster in the next decade or two than it did here. I think the second thing, and Adam sort of hinted at this, is that the the sheer focus that the Trump administration has had on immigration, the sheer number of changes he's made to various parts of America's very Byzantine immigration system, they're going to be really hard to undo. If Joe Biden wins, he will come into office inheriting a, a pandemic and a weak economy, and there are only so many places he can spend his political capital. So undoing what has been done to the immigration system would take I think will probably take quite a while. So I suppose you could say in summary that putting off immigrants from coming to America in some sense is what the Trump administration was after, and it seems to have succeeded on that score. There's been a really heavy toll, a kind of moral toll to pay there. It's worth pointing out here that the federal government had to admit in court the other day that it cannot find the parents of 545 children whom it separated from their parents at the US-Mexico border. Okay, thank you both. In a moment, we'll look at how Donald Trump has transformed global trade. First, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Our cover story this week is on social media and free speech. There's a piece by Charlotte about what Donald Trump has done to energy and carbon emissions in America. There's a piece by John Fasman about election uncertainties, poll watchers, undecided voters, postal voting, all that kind of thing. We've discussed how millennials are changing American politics on this podcast before. And there's a piece this week on how they're now disrupting finance. Subscribing is easy. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode.
Trade is arguably where Donald Trump has done the most to change the world. In raising tariffs, he's reversed decades of bipartisan orthodoxy in Washington. To get an idea of how permanent the Trump realignment could be, I've been speaking to The Economist's trade and globalisation editor, Samaya Keynes. The first thing he did was appoint Robert Lighthizer, who's the United States trade representative. And, and unlike Donald Trump, he does actually have a good grasp of the details of trade policy making. Lighthizer was the chief negotiator. He was the one going out and um, essentially hammering all these countries and saying, uh, you need to give us concessions. Otherwise, look at my boss over there. He's going to, to do something you won't like. They renegotiated a few deals. There was a deal with South Korea. There was a mini deal with Japan. There was a sort of weird handshake agreement with the EU that doesn't really count as a deal. More meaningfully, there was the phase one agreement with China. Um, and then there was the USMCA, the revamped NAFTA that was with Mexico and Canada. And that was a much broader comprehensive agreement that was passed by Congress. And to what extent do you think he's achieved his aims through these actions? His his method has been to make threats and then cut deals. Has it worked in its own terms? I mean, putting aside for the moment the question of whether this was a good thing to do in the first place. If you measure it just on the number of deals he's done, then then clearly, yes, uh, his bullying did extract some concessions from other governments. You have to look at some of the specifics of the deals to sort of assess whether they work. So, so take the USMCA. That deal included much more stringent rules for what could count as a North American car that could go from Mexico to the US. And the point of those rules was to encourage car manufacturers to use more American car parts, but also, frankly, to rejig their supply chains so that more production was in America. Now, fundamentally, it's too early to tell whether that is going to lead to some sort of big renaissance in, in American car manufacturing. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the car manufacturing sector. But it is the case that car manufacturers are shifting their supply chains. They are moving to respond to these deals. So these deals are having meaningful effects on the ground. And how about China, Samir, which is really the big foreign policy and trade break that Donald Trump has made with previous administrations, it, it seems to me. To what extent have his tariff wars, trade wars with China, fixed the underlying problem that he was raising on the campaign in 2016? Yeah, basically to, to no extent. Now, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. In this phase one deal, there were some meaningful commitments that the Chinese made, offering more access to American financial services companies, removing some technical barriers to agricultural products. But if you think that the structural deep tensions between the US and China stem from the Chinese sort of state-infused economy and, and the way that that spills over to the rest of the world, then the phase one agreement really didn't go any way to address that. And I guess underlying his whole approach to trade, there are a couple of ideas, aren't there? Number one is that he would reduce the trade deficit because in his view, though not in the view of almost any economist, trade deficits are bad, period. And second, that through his tough renegotiation of trade deals, he would revive American manufacturing. How has he done on those scores? The trade deficits 
conversation. I don't like it. Um, a lot of his emphasis was on bilateral trade deficits, so the, the American trade deficit with China or Mexico. And of course, as economists pointed out, the risk is that if you try to squash one bilateral trade deficit, then another one is just going to pop up somewhere else. So we've seen imports from China fall as a result of all the tariffs that, that Trump has applied. But at the same time, we've seen trade deficits with other countries grow. The trade deficit with Mexico has grown. Imports from Vietnam have been rising. In terms of his pledges to revive manufacturing employment, one could look at the overall level of manufacturing employment. And if you if you sort of eyeball the series over time, it's not clear that there's been some kind of revolution in manufacturing employment. If Donald Trump's re-elected, you will continue to be one of the busiest people on the paper because you cover trade and globalisation. If he loses, what happens? How much of what he's done in the trade sphere stays? Yeah, I think if he loses, I'm going to have a very long nap. And I, I think actually quite a bit of what he's done will stick around. So the USMCA is now in force. Um, it was it was approved on a bipartisan basis in Congress. So that that's here to stay. There's what he's done to the World Trade Organization. He's essentially broken its system of settling disputes. Now, there's a chance that a Biden administration could reverse that, but they're going to ask for concessions before they do that. Then we have China. And the big question is obviously what happens to the tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars of imports that are still in place. And there, I think politically, it's going to be very difficult for Biden to just remove all of those straight away. The reality is that Trump really has reset the economic relationship with China. We're not going to be able to go back to how things were when he entered office. I feel that let Samaya nap again could be a good political slogan for a party out there in this election cycle. Charlotte, what have you made of Donald Trump's trade policies, both aims, what he's achieved, and you know whether the whole thing was a good idea in the first place? It's funny because trade, like immigration, is so core to who Donald Trump is as a politician. I mean, it was in the 80s, right, that he was going off about um, America losing to Japan and being ripped off by other countries. I mean, this is just something that has been very much at the heart of his complaints with traditional politicians for, you know, 40 years now. And so the question always was what he'd do about it, whether if he was the person put in charge, he'd be able to change the system that he thinks has served America so poorly. And I think from what you hear from Samea is that yes and no. And the tariffs boosted jobs at some companies, like washing machine companies, but that there are other analyses that found that job losses related to trade have actually climbed over the past three years. So I don't think one can argue that Donald Trump's trade policies have been a huge win for the American economy on the other hand, you know, in some ways he has reset America's economic relationships with a lot of other countries. And whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, of course, depends on political party and your assessment of the particular sectors involved. But uh, he certainly has been disruptive. Politically, I think his positions on trade are part of what gave him a sort of heterodox appeal, right? 
and made him seem not like a traditional Republican. He's really not that far off from Bernie Sanders. They both are very suspicious of free trade. They both think that sort of trade and industrial policy should protect American workers more than that it should benefit American consumers. And so I think Charlotte is right that he has reset the conversation on trade. And the question now, if he loses, is whether Republicans go back to being a free trade party or whether they try to remain the voice of protectionism. I think that's such an interesting question, just to step back a little bit from trade for a moment. If he is to lose, which we don't know, but if he does lose what the Republican Party, how it will evolve after Trump, what will remain. And I wonder, you know, certainly with trade, Donald Trump was a departure from the philosophies of prior Republicans. I wonder on climate whether Republicans may adapt a bit, may look at the polling on climate and think that they need to get with the program and and start listening to scientists a bit more. I was struck in trying to analyze Trump's energy record that what he has essentially achieved in his first term is maximizing the environmental damage from oil and gas companies and from coal companies without materially improving their prospects. I mean, coal continues to decline, or the oil and gas boom is subsiding because of trends in what investors want and don't want. They don't want huge capital spending. You know, if Donald Trump succeeds in selling off, in auctioning off parts of the Arctic wildlife refuge, he may do so at fire sale prices. So I just wonder whether it's on trade, whether it's on climate, whether it's on the deficit, you know, whether Republicans may may change tack after this election should Donald Trump lose. If he wins, of course, then I think that we'll see more and more Republicans lining up behind him. One of the things that struck me reading Samaya's piece in this week's Economist, which sits alongside your piece, Charlotte, on energy and climate change and and the Trump administration, is that Trump has this method in trade deals and in foreign policy generally, I think, of making threats and then making deals. And part of the problem is he's viewed by almost everybody who he might want to make a deal with as an unreliable deal maker. So as soon as the ink was dry on the replacement for NAFTA, the USMCA, he started threatening Mexico with tariffs again. And other trade negotiators around the world looked at that and said, well, there's no point in doing any deals with this guy because we can't trust him to stick to them. So the fact that the rest of the world can see that he's unreliable and you can't take him at his word actually limits his effectiveness when it comes to the kind of threat and then make a deal approach to trade and also approach to foreign affairs. Okay, thanks both. We'll be back in a bit to discuss how the pandemic has exposed the limits of Donald Trump's brand of politics. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Lastly, this week, we're going to talk about COVID-19. It's become the main election issue since the president himself got sick. But it's also significant because it's where Trump's worldview and unique style of leadership seem to have come unstuck. 
Slavia Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. The CDC announced that they'll start random testing, flu samples collected around the country, just to see whether the virus is already in America undetected. And a week went by, a second week, and that testing has not begun. At that time, when cases were exploding all over Europe from ski resorts and so on, New York didn't have any. It was just bizarre. And at that point, it became clear that the virus was probably already spreading in America. Nobody even knew how rapidly. And it became clear that America is not going to do very well. Slavey, you've been covering COVID-19 all year, and it sometimes seems to me, reading about the virus in the US and in other countries, that at various moments, each country has been convinced that it's doing uniquely badly. The UK and parts of Europe are going back into various kinds of lockdown at the moment. Is the US really doing that badly compared with its international peers? If you look at the total number of people who have died, the death rate uh, per million in America versus Europe, America has done much, much worse. The death rate is about twice that in Europe as a whole. There are only a couple of European countries that have done worse than America. Spain and Belgium, I think, are the only ones. I think it's actually not the right way to judge America's response by comparing to countries that have done badly, because America could have done much better given where it started. It had relatively strong public health institutions. It could have used the first phase of the pandemic to prepare much better, and it didn't. Slavia, part of Donald Trump's political method is to blame other people when things go wrong and take the credit when they go well. Early on, the CDC had its problems with tests and Donald Trump has blamed the CDC, blamed Anthony Fauci, blamed various public health um, experts and officials for what's gone wrong with COVID. To what extent is he right about that? I mean, how has the reputation of America's sort of public health institutions suffered through the spread of the virus? Well, it's, it's in tatters, really, particularly the Centers of Disease Controls, uh, which historically has been a global leader. It's the crown jewel of global public health. It's really ironic because China's CDC is modeled on America's. The Chinese built their public health institutions to mirror that in America because it was the best. Even their logo looks like uh, America's CDC. And now we are seeing America's CDC completely missing domestically and globally. Even if you were trying to find out data on how the pandemic is going, it's not the CDC. It's, you know, the Johns Hopkins or the New York Times tracker or some other newspapers that have put together this data, which really, really looks bad for America. John, if Donald Trump does go on and lose this election, it will, I think, be remembered partly as the COVID election. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the year when you and I were talking January, say, we thought President Trump was maybe slightly favoured to be re-elected because the economy was so strong and incumbent presidents normally get re-elected when the economy is strong. The Economist's election forecast put together by Elliott gave Donald Trump about a 50-50 chance of being elected earlier in the year. 
And it's really COVID-19 that seems to have destroyed his chances of re-election. And now, if you're a Trump supporter, you might say, well, that was really unlucky for him. But actually, if you look at other presidents and leaders in other bits of the world, several of them have seen their approval ratings go up because of how they've handled the epidemic. Donald Trump has not. uh, And that's no accident, really, is it? I think if you look at what just happened in New Zealand, where Jacinda Ardern was re-elected handily, she no longer has to be in a coalition. The share of her vote rose, principally because she handled COVID-19 so well. Now, the comparison is not entirely accurate. I know it's a favorite trope of Trump's critics to point to New Zealand and how well she did. America is a much more open, bigger country with a more diffuse system of political power. America couldn't do what Jacinda Ardern did, but it could get close, right? And I think one reason why COVID has been so damning for Trump is that it has exposed the limits of his style of governance. You can't bully or deceive a virus. It just does what it does, and you have to adapt your strategy. And so he has not met the moment when meeting the moment is just a question of putting in place sort of basic public health precautions. He has continued to insist that the virus will go away, that it's a hoax, that it's not a big deal. And his insistence has just been at odds with not other people's opinions, but with people's perceptions of reality and with reality. It's very hard to defeat reality. Charlotte, it seems to me that his leadership has failed in a couple of different ways during this crisis. One is a conventional way. He's done a really bad job. The White House has done a really bad job of coordinating America's response to COVID-19. I don't think you can argue with that. And the second way it's failed has been in a more unconventional way, which is that Donald Trump has tried to use the virus to sort of demagogue on and do politics as he usually does it. I mean, if you remember a couple of months ago when he was encouraging people to go and protest against the statewide lockdown that Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, had put in place, it's pretty amazing how he has not only undercut the messages that his own public health officials have been putting out, but also undermine state governors as they've tried to step in and fill that vacuum. I think that's right. And I think it's simply a very hard problem for Donald Trump for the reasons that both you and John Fassman have outlined. But in addition, I think you know Trump is usually pretty good at trying to blame people's incompetence for different problems. And it's just hard with this virus to find that many people to credibly blame while absolving his own administration. It's just not a blame game that works particularly well for him. I was struck recently that he has been more explicit in his attacks of Anthony Fauci, whom most Americans view as having done an excellent job of handling the virus compared with less than 40% think the president has done a good job. So I think, you know, he's kind of scrambling around looking for other people to blame, but it just hasn't been that effective. John, it's also been really striking watching Donald Trump and comparing him with other politicians around the world, how absent he's been on what I can only describe as the sort of empathy part of being a president or being a leader. At no point really does he seem to have expressed sadness or sorrow for those who've lost loved ones in this crisis. And when asked about his own handling of COVID-19, he's only ever said, oh, I've done brilliantly, you know, couldn't have been better. That's been a pretty extraordinary thing to see. His contraction of the COVID virus presented him with an opportunity to turn around his campaign and his narrative. He could have said, you know, I was wrong to dismiss it as I did 
It's a serious threat. I've got it. I understand it now. I'm better because of extraordinary care. I'm going to do my best to make sure all of the Americans have this extraordinary care. I was very lucky. Other Americans haven't been as lucky. You know, my heart goes out to them. But that isn't really what happened, right? He made his diagnosis principally about him and how he's feeling and how much better he's feeling. And so I think he missed a real trick to turn his campaign around. I suspect he may have missed the last best chance to turn his campaign around with that diagnosis. Charlotte, a Trump supporter defending his handling of COVID-19 might say, well, hang on, what Donald Trump has really shown is a preference for keeping the economy going versus shutting everything down and trying to stop the virus from spreading. And you know, there's a hard trade-off here between public health and you know, not damaging the economy too much. And President Trump, faced with that dilemma, has gone down the route of um, trying to keep the economy ticking over. Is that a defense that you find convincing? I'm not surprised that that defense is made. I think you look at the number of people who lost their jobs since the start of the pandemic, and I, I completely understand that rationale. And for even people who've kept their jobs, which I, at least so far, have been lucky enough to do, it's challenging. You know, having everything locked down is very challenging to have kids schooled at home. The whole thing is very trying. I also don't think that Americans as a whole think that it's an either or. I mean, it is it is a bit of a false choice, right? I mean, you, if you were to have the economy fully open without any restrictions whatsoever, there would have been an even higher number of deaths so far this year. And there has been a remarkable progress on a vaccine. We're trying to keep the rates of infection down so that once a vaccine is available, the economy can fully get back to its normal state. But I think that if you look at the president's approval ratings on COVID, there is an understanding among voters that it's not an either or and that in order to have a, a sound recovery, there needs to be some restriction. I guess the final thing I'd say on the economic front of that trade is that Washington did a good job, Congress, Senate did a good job early on of getting a big stimulus through, which the president signed, and that was good and seemed to do some real good. But President Trump really failed to use his influence to bring about a second stimulus. And, you know, the country's really suffering from a lack of that at the moment. His lack of skill as a politician, you know, the, the downside of electing somebody who doesn't really get how Washington works or how you pass legislation, I think has been really evident in, in that absent stimulus, which is doing a lot of damage at the moment. So even if you're minded to make the argument that Donald Trump's been trying to preserve the economy, he's done a notably bad job of it on, on that score. It's especially striking that you have the opposition party eager to hand out $2 trillion weeks before an election, and he has not taken them up on it. Yes, I'd agree with that too, John. Though, of course, what I think doesn't really count for much is the verdict of American voters that matters. One thing that seems pretty clear to me, though, is that this election will not primarily be decided on Donald Trump's record. It's not an election where people are going to look down the balance sheet of the two policies of the two men running for office, compare them and say, oh, on balance, I think Donald Trump's tax policy is better, so I'm going to vote for him. Or on balance, Joe Biden's environmental policy is better, so I'm going to vote for him. I think this is much more an election about values, um, about Donald Trump's modus operandi, about how he's changed political culture in America. And those are the things we're going to be talking about in our final podcast before the election next week. 
All right, before I let you go, I have a quiz. Charlotte, let's see if you can keep that hot streak going. The quiz this time comes from 1843 magazine, our sister publication, and a piece published this very week about presidential movie choices. The White House Family Theatre is a small wonder, writes Matthew Sweet. It was converted in 1942 from an East Wing cloakroom by a pair of movie nuts called Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Space is limited to 42, with front row armchairs and footrests for the first family. So I'll give you a quote from a movie. You guys name the film and the president who watched it in the White House. This is good. Okay, here's the first one. I feel the need, the need for speed. Oh, that's Top Gun, and that had to be Reagan. Fasman, you got there first. Charlotte, you're playing goose to Fasman's maverick. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always. Quote two, I'm the king of the world. Oh, Titanic, and that would have been during Clinton. I never saw that movie. I never saw it either. Is it too late? Did we miss it? (laughs) No, that's what Netflix is for. Uh, It's a great movie. You should go. Actually, is it a great movie? No, it's not really a great movie. Third quote. Can't make no vows to a herd of cows. (laughs) I don't know. It had to be a Western, right? Um, Wait, hold on. What about City Slickers or something? I mean, I don't know. What cowboy movies? That's not really a real cowboy movie. What about the cowboy caper about weddings where they marry people? There's a bunch of wives for a bunch of people. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Fasman, you got there eventually. It is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, those Charlotte, I thought City Slickers, which is a great movie, was also a good shout. Who was the president who watched Seven Brides for Seven Brothers in the White House? It's a musical. Yes, I know. My friend Kate Summers, I feel like, watches it all the time. Not to embarrass her, but I think that would have been in the late 50s. Like, who, uh, right? Yes. So Eisenhower? Uh, yeah, so Eisenhower. It was Eisenhower. I think that's just about a Fasman point, though you maybe get deducted a fraction of a point for throwing out four or five different answers before getting to the correct one. <laughs> uh, fourth quote. No bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Is that Apocalypse Now? That's from Patton. Great movie. Oh, Patton. It was from Patton, Lust for Glory. Who was the president? I have no idea when it came out. Is it the 60s? Is it Kennedy? I think it's I think it's later than 60s, isn't it? 70s? Nixon? Charlotte, it was Nixon. He loved the World War II biopic so much that Chinese Premier Zhao Enlai prepared for their annual summit meeting by watching it. Quote five. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> These aren't the droids you're looking for. Oh, that's, that's Star Wars and Carter. Correct on both counts. Carter watched Star Wars at Camp David in 1978 with the Egyptian leader, Anwar Sadat. <laughs> that last detail is from Matt Novak, who's writing a book on presidents and movies. You can read 1843 magazine online as part of your Economist subscription, which, of course, you should get if you don't have one already. Well, that's all from us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. If you've already left us a rating or a review, thanks very much. It's really helped to spread the word and keep us going on. You can get in touch on email too. The address is radio at economist.com. If you want the latest on the presidential debate, have a listen to Friday's episode of The Intelligence, The Economist's daily podcast. Thanks very much for listening. In the meantime, we'll have more checks and balance next week. 
Jen Fassman, you are particularly kind about it. Sometimes I make a point and it's like a really mediocre point and you always manage to say that it sounded interesting. So I appreciate it. I don't think you make mediocre points. <laughs> I think your points are excellent, Charlotte, but I've noticed when I make mediocre points, John Fassman, some people when they're thinking and about to speak go, um, and... John says, I think that's a really good point. And that gives him time to think. And then he makes his really good point. That's very shrewd. That's very shrewd. Yeah, good point. (laughs) I've noticed that. Busted. I no longer fall for it. (laughs) Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.